Gracious Father, we thank you for um, the opportunity to gather as we have today, um, eating good food after a morning of corporate worship and now uh, shifting to just some, uh, some opportunity to get to know these two gentlemen uh, better and also to, to uh, grow in our understanding of what it is we are doing here. Uh, so we are grateful for your grace to us. We're thankful for the work of your son, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So in terms of a little bit of context, you may be wondering what it is we are doing here exactly, thinking why would a Q&A with two guys that I know pretty well already uh, be appropriate? Well, I'm wondering that too. Which is part of the fun. So uh, it, was, it was my idea, and so if it is a train wreck, we don't have to do it again. And, uh, and you can blame me. Uh, but if you do like it, consider yourself green-lighted to ask these gentlemen questions like what I'm about to ask them whenever you see them. Um, and it was born out of a few uh, ideas and factors sort of converging at the same time. And I think a lot about what we are trying to do here as a, as a church and then um, by extension, Evangel Classical School, Comfort College. So, uh, what we're trying to do here as a community and why we're trying to do it. And I know that I'm not alone in that because I am joined at least in that mental exercise by the, the board of uh, TEC, so the elders, the board of Evangel Classical School, the board of Comfort College, and others. But where many of us just sort of are trying to put one step in front of the other and trying to do the next thing and do the next right thing and be faithful, at best our conception of what we're trying to do is, is, is nebulous, it's fuzzy. And Sean and Philip in particular spend a lot of time distilling and articulating these ambitious aims for other people. Um, if nothing else, I benefit from hearing them talk about it when we are in some of those meetings and so on. And I wanted to give them opportunity to do that this afternoon. And so some of the questions I'm going to be asking them related to that. But this is also a great opportunity to just have a little bit of fun and to get to know them better uh, as well. And I think Sean needs to get used to speaking to humans again a little bit. So, uh, so first, how are you feeling? <clears throat> Excellent question. I am not reluctant about being here. So that, that's valuable. Uh, I am doing about a thousand times better than Monday night, Tuesday, or even Wednesday. So uh, there has been dramatic improvement in my surgical uh, recovery. <laughs> so uh, like uh, if you've been listening to me try to answer this question individually for the last couple of weeks as having pretty severe pain on both the left and right side, and uh, a lot of that is gone. So the pain from my right side, which was relatively new, that's all gone. Uh, I've started having a little bit of discomfort in my left foot post-surgery again, but uh, that can also take a few weeks to go entirely away. But the surgical spot itself was actually really painful, and I spent most of Tuesday night uh, writhing around, unable to sleep, unable to find any comfortable position, pretty much unable to even, I couldn't even be a sluggard very well. Turning from side to side was excruciating, uh, let alone trying to then get up from the bed. So Wednesday, I spent some time on the phone with the doctor's office, and they gave me a higher pain med and uh, encouraged me to 
not just take that, but to take that with some other, other medications as well. So I started doing better, and uh, now I am feeling uh, pretty weak and tired and trying to listen to more than two people talk in a room at the same time is uh, challenging, but uh, feeling way better than I was pre-surgery, I would say, and uh, still looking forward to getting better. So, um, seems like you're going to be okay. Uh, you're, you're ready for this. So I'm ready. Um, in the interest of still getting used to talking to humans again, uh, inquiring minds want to know, and, and I just want to know what, what, kind of, what kind of encouragement you could offer to somebody who's addicted to white girl coffee uh, to make the transition to drinking it like a man. <clears throat> I actually just read an article uh, a couple of days ago about how very few people make ongoing changes, like lasting changes, unless they really identify the thing that's causing them pain that they are unwilling to keep enduring anymore. And uh, the pain at the time that I was enduring was anytime I looked at the scale and uh, just not feeling very comfortable so this would have been about 18 years ago at this point. So I was accustomed to drinking venti caramel macchiatos at Starbucks probably four or more times a week. So I had all my meetings there that I could, and anytime I was there having a meeting, I got a venti caramel macchiato. And I would carry around with me one of those uh, Coffee Mate vanilla creamer, like French vanilla creamer containers from one fridge to another, depending on where I was going, because there was no way I was drinking black coffee. But uh, yeah, you I didn't. Like a Batman belt? <laughs> just whipped it out over. Utility belt of French vanilla? Well, those who know that I am very minimalistic in my packing know what a big deal that was me to carry a whole extra thing around with me but I weighed almost 260 pounds uh, I saw myself in some pictures and uh, just wasn't very comfy so that was a pain that was was not acceptable to me anymore so I made a few decisions like uh, no more uh, soda that had sugar in it and I was only allowed to have one plate of food. I could heat that plate up as much as I wanted, but I could only have one plate. So no seconds, let alone third or fourths. Did you like bring your own plate as well? <laughs> that? No, I was satisfied. I, I followed the limitations of whatever plates were available. Uh, and then I said, no more cream my coffee and no more car macchiatos unless it was going to be like a the birthday, the Starbucks birthday reward. So I went black coffee uh, about 18 years ago, and it took somewhere around a week before I decided I actually enjoyed it. So I forced myself to do it, and then after a week or so, I actually decided, you know what, this is all right. And uh, so I have been black coffee and down to Americanos, the splurge drink is an Americano with a little bit of half and half. Uh, except for the birthday reward, I'll still do a car macchiato. Let it not be said that Sean doesn't know how to party. 
yes. party. Um, and you've been clean for 18 years now. You said this was going to be a fun afternoon, and since my middle name is fun. Um, yeah, it's like, yes, duck water. Yeah, that's right. right. Um, and when's the last time you had a caramel macchiato, just curiously? So I think it was last Thursday I was in, this was pre-surgery. That wasn't your birthday. Yeah, no. <laughs> so a week ago Thursday, uh, Mo was sick, and I was still in crazy pain pre-surgery, and so Caitlin Hall brought some some sneaky snack gifts to Mo and I to help us survive, and she brought me a car macchiato. Man. So I didn't resist. I said, okay, I can be served and blessed by this. You were not reluctant. Right. Philip, do you even drink coffee? I do drink coffee. Okay. Yeah. I, so, but you style yourself a Russian. I do. Yeah, I'm, um, this is actually a shame area for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're here. Yeah. This is a time for confession. Um, yeah, I, I am a traitor to my culture for the amount of tea <laughs> that I drink. I don't drink enough tea to be a to be a worthy Russian. So you're supposed to drink a few mugs of tea after every meal, and I, I don't do that. Um, so maybe, I'm trying to repent, but maybe when the pain gets bad enough, then I'll commit. <laughs> for now, coffee. Do you ever drink vodka? I do not like vodka. So no, no vodka, minimal tea. Uh, I like scotch and bourbon. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll drink tea when I that have That is not Russian is his point. Yeah. yeah. I, was, I was born here. So <laughs> all right. There you go. I was born in America. But, um, I, I, I mean, but we all have seen from personal experience that you identify whichever direction is most convenient or expedient in the moment. That, yes. Okay. I have been trained yes. to do that. That is, that is shrewd. I, when I think about you, I think about shape-shifting for sure. I think about not being the same person depending where you're at. I mean, Paul used his Roman <laughs> citizenship expediently. And so um, I'm able to do that. And uh, we're also in a community where I need to be able to play both sides. So it, it works. <laughs> Touche. All right. So when did you become a Christian? We're elevating the level of conversation here a little Me. bit. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> From how I got less fat right. drinking black coffee to what's your testimony? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, that escalated quickly. Um, well, I was I was born in a Christian family, so my dad my dad's a pastor, um, and so yeah, I don't I don't ever uh, remember a time that I didn't believe in God or confess Jesus as Lord. That was uh, I was raised in that, uh, so that was the expectation. Um, I was baptized when I was fifteen, um, but uh, I would say that I was. Uh, a confessing believer for as long as I can remember. Um, so I think probably around my early teenage years was when I was feeling more convicted of, uh, of um, aligning my life with God's standard. But So, yeah, I don't really remember a time that I wasn't a Christian. When I was a younger man, uh, those sorts of testimonies seemed boring to me because... Um, I had heard so many really dramatic conversion stories and had envied them a little bit. Uh, and, of course, the older I've gotten, the more I've seen. That is actually a really precious thing when you're fortunate enough to grow up in that culture, um, a, a family culture from, from the start. And now you're the youngest of? Of five. 
So now, and I'm the youngest of six, so tell me, fellow lastborn, do we run the world? Or is it the, or is it the firstborns? There is a right answer to this. And there's a reason I'm not asking the firstborn in the room. Hello. <laughs> um, we think we do. Um, the firstborns would like not to. So what's your right answer? <laughs> firstborns, yeah. My observation is the firstborns reserve the right to change the rules of the games as they go along. Uh, I've always thought that was sort of an unfair... So I only have interaction with firstborns. I don't have it inside of me, but with my firstborn and with firstborns I usually interact with, usually there's more reluctance there. I will say that as a child, so while I was still living under my parents' roof as a firstborn, I used all the power and authority I had as a firstborn to try to get my sister from disobeying so that she wouldn't get us both in trouble. So she refused to listen to me give her the wise advice on how to not make my dad in particular mad. That's, I was just trying to serve us all. But she, she consistently refused to heed my wisdom as a firstborn. This actually explains a lot of Sean's backstory. Which is why we're here. So, um, all right, so, uh, and you can do this rapid fire or you can give a, uh, a defense or rationale if you're so inclined, but... Uh, three movies that are your favorite and three movies that you recommend that everybody watch. And again, of course, there's overlap, even better. So we'll have you go first. I don't, I have some things like off the cuff I could say. I don't have movies ready to go. I don't know favorite or recommended. I could say a few that I like. Okay. I don't know if they are at the level of favorite. Um, we'll go with it. Uh, I like Braveheart. I do think that men should, should watch that movie. Um, I like his overall, uh, even classical education, and then being able to go and uh, save his people. I really like um, The Last Stand, I think, with Winston Churchill. The Darkest Hour. Last Stand is a different one. The Darkest Hour. We're about Winston Churchill. Um, I've watched that one, I don't know, four, maybe five times. Um, I really like that one. So, um, And I like Nacho Libre. <laughs> so that one I'd recommend. I, I, I bet if you'd have given everyone in the audience five guesses... None of them would have guessed that would have even been Well, especially on the, on, on, yeah. on the heels of uh, William Wallace and Winston Churchill. I had to mix it up. I was going to say something else, but Nacho. that one had to get in there. Okay. All right. Beat that, Sean. That's fantastic. I mean, probably my favorite movie of all time is still The Natural. When I was a kid growing up, um, we had the Disney Channel, which had no alphabet letters related to it when I was a kid. And so Disney Channel would actually edit movies and play them without commercials. And so a lot of the movies that I knew uh, were ones that my parents had you know, taped onto VHS. So I had a copy of The Natural growing up that I wore out. I mean, I probably watched that VHS tape of The Natural 
into the hundred or two hundreds of times because I tried to watch it before every game in high school. But it didn't have any of the curse words or any of the, even the sexual innuendo that the actual uh, natural movie has, which when I watched the actual one for the first time, I was like, what is this? So I was kind of disappointed and can't then recommend it as easily as it was for me to recommend. But <clears throat> I mean, I like the brooding martyr baseball movies. <laughs> Who wouldn't? So like, like the natural, but you, you say it like it's its own genre. It, well, it should be. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the natural is probably my favorite movie all time. I do really like the rookie. He's not quite as brooding or martyry, but, um, <laughs> I do like the rookie a lot. I, <clears throat> I do like darkest hour a lot. Hi. Um, am entertained so like my musical genre that I prefer which I realize isn't the question but I generally prefer happy music that isn't like how most of my thoughts are most of the time and so when I turn on a movie I also would usually rather let it be happily distracting to me rather than making me more sad so I can do that on my own or like watching the news. I don't, I don't need a movie to help me with that necessarily. So I end up realizing that I like a lot of movies that relate to stealing and con men and heists, <laughs> which depending on what mood some of my children are in, they might wonder how righteous that is, but I have really enjoyed Ocean's 11 and 12 uh, again and again, more, more than Ocean's 13, but Ocean's 11 and 12. I used to watch regularly on Saturday night when I was finishing up sermon notes. Uh, for me, it was easier to study and do some writing while watching a movie that I already knew because then I could look up and break at any time and laugh, haha, and then go back to what I was doing as opposed to uh, something that I didn't know what was going to happen next. I felt like I had to be paying attention. So next time during your sermon, when you start quoting Ocean's Eleven by accident, yeah, we'll know why. I only have one. That's a quote from Ocean's Eleven right there. You know what your problem is? Yeah, I only have one. Um, in terms of recommending, I mean, you can't go wrong watching Hoosiers if you're in any kind of sports, basketball especially. Hoosiers, remember the Titans. While I was writhing around, I, I watched Tuesday night. In the middle of the night, I, I rewatched Remember the Titans, Attitude, Reflect, Leadership, Cap'n. Uh, that's fantastic. Master and Commander, I'd recommend, uh, again, for watching. Darkest Hour is one I enjoy and I would recommend. So that, that was more than three. And the first time you watched The Darkest Hour was on the plane to the UK, yeah? Yeah, I didn't even know anything about it. Yeah. <clears throat> and... Uh, uh, my literally my trip to the UK that first time would not have been the same apart from having watched the darkest hour ahead of time so even my appreciate for as awesome as uh, going to the American cemetery and being on some of the beaches in France were uh, I wouldn't have appreciated them as much without some of the backstory 
in uh, the darkest hour. Plus, then we got to go to the Churchill, uh, which I think they had just opened up. When was that trip? 2018? Yeah. Yeah. So I think they had just opened that up. So clearly I wouldn't have valued from going into the war rooms and actually then getting to see some of the things that were pictured uh, in the movie. So, I mean, I would watch that in terms of an ingredient for World War II history, and I would watch that in terms of leadership, and I would watch that in terms of rhetoric. So I'd encourage uh, that one for all those. I, I mean, the more that I learn about Churchill, the more I realize that he did actually make, it seems like he made a bunch of bad decisions as well throughout the course of his life. But at least during that stretch and during that time where he, he was pretty much alone or felt alone in trying to, to uh, push back the German troops in France. I mean, that, that season of his life, uh, their, their portrayal of it in that movie, I, I enjoyed. So imagine you, uh, you get on the elevator with one person and you're heading to the 30th floor um, where you're both getting off. And he asks you, what is Kuiperian dispensationalism? And you know the relationship is going to end at floor 30 when we are the others. So that's all the time you have. What would you say? Timer starts now. Um, wait, I guess I should wait and tell you which one of you is going first. Yeah, sure, you go ahead. <laughs> Ding. Kuiperian means that we recognize that Jesus is Lord, and that is beyond just our salvation, but Jesus is Lord is our confession and in many ways our marching orders. So if Jesus cares about it, if Jesus is Lord of it, then we also are allowed to care about it and in some sense even then uh, should be caring about it as stewards. And in fact, as he blesses those who are honoring Jesus as Lord, uh, he turns them into a kind of object lesson to the Jews and uses that object lesson of blessing Gentiles who are living with Jesus as Lord, obviously, yes, in salvation, but then in all of their life, in, in all the spheres uh, where they're making decisions, God blesses them in order to cause Jews, who he's made promises to, to see blessings among the Gentiles and be provoked to repent and turn to Christ uh, themselves. And that is, in fact, even part of God's uh, plan for the future is that more Gentiles are going to be blessed to make more Jews jealous on the way to eventually converting the entire nation uh, in a future generation uh, and fulfilling his new covenant promises. So Kyperian dispensationalism is acknowledging that we haven't, the church is not, I'm over my 30 seconds, but we're walking to the back. I'm walking oh, the, with a guy to the bathroom. The, dude, the dude's got his foot in the door. He's making sure it stays open because yeah. this is too good. Um, but we, um, we're dispensationalists because we don't think that the church is taking all of the promises that God made to Israel. But we actually see that Kyperianism and living with Jesus as Lord is sort of like the, the cue ball that God is going to use as God blesses saved Gentiles, makes them jealousable. They're like a cue ball being shot into the rack that brings forward, that breaks the rack and causes many Jews to repent and believe in Christ as part of God's promise. 
Phil, if you want to try and improve on that. Um, <clears throat> oh, by the way, your elevator only goes to the 10th floor. What? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Shorter trip. Yeah. Yeah, I think that... Uh, so I wouldn't mention the Jews. Or maybe even Kyperion, but so just the worldview in general. Um, God is a covenant-keeping God, and God keeps covenant within a physical, tangible, material world. So whenever God makes um, uh, the terms of the covenant or the stipulations of the covenant, uh, those are clear, specific and something you could see and touch and feel, right? And so uh, when God writes in the Bible uh, what he writes, we are to take it the way uh, he says it is. And so when, when God says the world is good, we are to receive that as what he says. When God says that Christ is Lord, we are to receive that as what he says. When, when God says who Israel is, we should take that as he says. When God says who the church is, we should take that as it says. And so when God creates a promise, and so I'll, I'll put Jews into here, so. But when God makes a promise to a specific bloodline, uh, to a specific DNA that is physical, tangible, uh, material, something you could uh, test, um, uh, we ought to keep it at the level that he brought it in. If I am to try to spiritualize that or allegorize that out of it, what's stopping me from doing that in other areas as well? And so because I like my stake to be real and not just a hologram, not just something that I'm cutting into that I know is fake, so another movie reference, right, with Matrix. Um, but I like my steak warm and juicy. I like my my butter thick on the bread to actually melt for it not just to be a typological spiritual allegory of everything I'm doing when I'm reading the Bible I want to read the Bible in the way that God prescribed it as well and when I'm living in this earth I ought to be able to enjoy my present moment right now with my kids with my wife with my church as opposed to seeing everything as a means to an end and so I think there there's a way to have a means to an end but God calls us to live in the here and now and so the way he prescribes that moment to live under the lordship of christ whether we're talking about jews or gentiles whether we're talking about uh, kingdom to come or his his uh, lordship being manifest here it ought to be real not just um, an allegory not just theoretical um so then you are um a leader in your business as a, a Kyperian businessman, how do you view your roles and responsibilities to advance that, uh, that worldview in your professional sphere of responsibility? Specifically in business. <clears throat> yeah, I think, um, uh, so there's, there's two dynamics maybe, but um, the, the golden rule of treat your neighbor as yourself, um, uh, loving your neighbor, loving people. Uh, what we do in business is all focused on one thing. So you can have a business license, you can have a product, you can have an org chart, um, 
you could have employees. You don't have a business until you have a customer, until you have an actual person who uh, sees value in what you're offering. Uh, so sees value in the service of the product. You can, you can sell someone else's product as a wholesaler. Um, you could be a, a uh, one-person show, no employees. You could work under the counter and not have a business license um, uh, and still have a business if you have a customer, if you have somebody who is willing to, to trade their, their resources for what the value that you're offering. And so uh, when we try to Christianize the business world by um, uh, making it a means to an end, so I'm going to use my customer uh, in order then to take profit and uh, give it to the missionaries or give it to some other kind of field. Um, or I'm going to use my customer in order to evangelize to my, uh, uh, to my the, the people I hire, to my employees. Um, that is taking that person who I'm supposed to love and making them a means to an end. It is trying to manipulate that person into some other endeavor. But if I'm called to love this actual person, it's the, 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 the customer who's in front of me. And so what is the best way that I could do that? I don't need to anxiously try to figure out how to make all this connect. This is what's right in front of me. How do I you know, weld this bead or make this uh, financial statement uh, or build this house in such a way that blesses this person with what he's actually asking me to do? Um, and Christ's lordship is all-encompassing and it's also focused on every hair on our head. And so when I am honing in my skill as a craftsman to lay a good weld bead or to, um, to be able to build a quality house or whatever my business is, I am doing that unto the Lordship of Christ, period, stop. So just with that act itself. It doesn't need to be uh, propagated or supported by some kind of, uh, uh, again, uh, spiritual dynamic. Uh, the actual physical blessing that I'm doing that I'm doing for my customer is good and honors the Lord in that actual act. And so uh, I do think that that kind of message in the Christian business world. So in, in our sphere, uh, there's um, uh, there's seven of us partners. So Max is one of our business partners. Um, and so we, we do come across a lot of other Christian business people who are interested in business, interested in, in specifically in Christians advocating for business. And it's rare that we come across people who understand that business is not just a means to an end in that way, but you could actually bless people's lives through the avenue of business. And it's actually a very um, obvious and sadly overlooked sphere. Uh, we are called to work six days a week. Um, we are saved for good works. Uh, work that we do is part of our life. And so to be able to then uh, think that work and business and that whole field is uh, some kind of uh, 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 second step away from actually living our calling um, seems like you're missing the mark. And so a lot of the, the Christian business people do, I think, miss the mark in the way where they see business just as a means to an end, and we can use it then to either fund our uh, actual uh, things we care about, or again, use it to um, ev evangelize or demonstrate our ethics. But serving the customer and doing good work there 
is good work that we ought to do more of. That's really good. So, um, I mean, uh, you already addressed a couple of follow-up questions I had related to that. And so you, you would say that a, that a faithful Christian who brings a, a biblical mindset to the workplace is already a decided advantage over a secularist um, because he can, he can approach his, his work as not just an opportunity to honor the Lord, but as a, as a, means, to, as a means of blessing other people, as doing, doing good work. Right, with the actual work. Yeah. yeah. And the product. Yeah, right, right, right. And so also the Christian can, can provide a rationale as to why that even makes sense, whereas a secularist could not. He would say you need to be expedient and, uh, and take matters in your own hand, maybe even defraud or exploit as necessary because the bottom line is the end. I think a secularist could do even better work than a Christian, a better quality, on time. A lot of the times uh, that, that's even what happens more frequently because the Christian sees their work as a means to an end. It doesn't really matter. And this, is, this just goes back to what I was saying about you know, spiritualizing or um, allegorizing everything that we do. That's why, I mean, I love uh, everything about like Doug Wilson in Moscow and all of that. Um, and so we, I've learned a lot from, from, uh, from listening to him. Um, but that worldview of, uh, of actually enjoying uh, the, the physical world doesn't make sense when you're reading the Bible in a way that is allegory, in a way that is, that is spiritualizing. And so most Christians in business also approach business through a spiritual dynamic or an allegory. And so secularists outrun them. They outpace them because they don't have a spiritual reality at all. So, yes, when, when they die, the Christian goes to heaven, the, uh, the uh, pagan does not. Um, but uh, th- their mindset is on this physical world, but it only makes sense for the Christian's mindset to be even more on this physical world. So the, the, the secularist can outrun him, but he doesn't get any glory. So I think that's where the, the distinction lies, is um, the, the, the atheist could do really good work, and it'll all burn up. Uh, God will use that for his own means. God, God directs those means, and he will even uh, take that away and bless his people with the secularist work. But when the Christian works unto the Lord, he is um, accumulating glory. He's accumulating um, an imperishable wealth. Um, and so I think that, that, that approach there has more even to do where who, who gets that credit, that glory, the actual return on the investment. <clears throat> I'm not a businessman per se. I do care about it and even my understanding of what the what part of <clears throat> the pastoral role is or the preaching and teaching role is is to give encouragement to God's people and I used to think that the way you could tell if someone was uh, growing in their spiritual life was by their capacity to lead a Bible study. That's a, a, a narrow uh, summary of that, but as, as kind of what it was. And then when I put that together with James 3 that says, let not many of you be teachers, then I realized I was actually wrong for having such a narrow view of what then somebody's mature, spiritual maturing life would look like. So while not being a businessman, I do actually think that part of my responsibility is to encourage businessmen. 
And it seems like one of the things that should be encouraging is that God actually cares and God is the one who is giving meaning to whatever their calling is. In, in whatever way, you know, they are going to be a blessing. So whether that's, you know, feeding your kid a sandwich at lunch or that's fixing a car for your client, you know, your customer who uh, needs it to get back and forth to their other job or that is actually selling cars or selling coffee to the people who are driving their cars that are working to get to their job, whatever it is. Like those people should be encouraged that all of those tasks uh, actually do give identity to them in terms of having a meaning for why they're doing it. And our current culture is desperate for meaning the way that most of them get around that desperation is by just trying to distract themselves. Those who spend any time trying to actually think about, well, what, what am I doing here? What is the point of this? You know, they could read Ecclesiastes and they would resonate a lot with, you know, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Well, there is actually an explanation for what makes it not vanity, and that is that God cares and you don't need the approval of a preacher or a pastor or an elder to do your work and have it be meaningful and have God be pleased with it. So there is actually identity and meaning for one's life in being able to do all of the work on a, whatever the work is and have God care. I thought about somewhere between 12 to 15 years ago, I thought that that message would actually be such a, a relief and encouragement to a bunch of people I knew and even that I had been teaching. I thought it would be a huge relief to them to hear that they didn't have to be a vocational pastor or missionary for God to care about their work. And uh, for a few, it was a relief. And for many, it was just transferring the burden to, oh, man, God cares? Well, I would like him to just not be paying attention. And I was, I was actually surprised. It, it took me multiple years to get over my surprise at how many Christians would rather have some low level of guilt for not being a professional Christian and then just act like God gave them the rest of the time to do whatever they wanted. And to be told that God cared about what they were doing the rest of that time got taken as an a even, even greater burden than the, the, the discouragement or the guilt of, well, I'm not doing the most important things. So it is actually, apparently, a necessary thing to learn as a disciple how it is a better burden that God cares and that he can give meaning to all of our tasks, all of our assignments. That is a better burden than the burden of vanity or than the burden of self-glory. So I guess this is one of those, it's not whether but which. It's not whether there's a burden to the work. It, it is which burden is the better one to carry. And the better one to carry is that God delights in giving his people work 
and having them do it. And that's not just in teaching a Bible study. So <coughs> I think it's C.S. Lewis who wrote the Pilgrim's Regress. Um, or there's that, that meme, right, where it's like a bell curve where you're a beginner and then... A midwit. Is that, that's what it, mid, midwit. Right, midwit, yeah. so you kind of know something and you're freaking out and then the, the last level. So the, the beginner, being even like the, the pagan, really cares about that physical work, the labor, that, that's all there is. And he does so naively. He does so because he's stupid. Um, he does so because he doesn't know any better. So for him, all there is is the physical world. And so he only cares about that. Then you do have Christians who are living in the physical world, but they know of the spiritual realm. They know something. And so they, they do live in this kind of freak-out, anxiety type of approach, the, the midwit, that's what you call the, where it's like, we've got to make sure we don't forget to evangelize. We've got to make sure we don't forget to, you know, demonstrate our ethics. We've got, so everything we're doing in the physical world, we're always freaking out to bring it into the spiritual realm. But then after you realize that Jesus is Lord of it all, and he gives people meaning in the actual work, in the life that they live, in changing babies' diapers. Like, then you enter into the stage of, hey, I, I could live and enjoy and delight in this physical world because I know Christ is ruler of it all. And, and yes, there's, there's a spiritual dynamic to it, but I'm not constantly walking around uh, with this sense of burden that I have to make sure I... Mm, have a lifeline to the spiritual realm with everything that I do. Yeah, it is uh, incredibly freeing to be able to go about our days with the full awareness that, that Christ, who is Lord over all, has a greater care for the mundane than, than we do. And I think, I think Christians who are not happy to hear that are still in that midwit uh, stage. They just and, and unfortunately, that is just not a compelling testimony at all. So... The, wor the world doesn't need help to be um, disinterested. Uh, they, they are going to be provoked. The world is going to be provoked and encouraged when, uh, when it sees um, a deep, lasting, happy delight in all of God's good gifts, um, the things of earth and everything else. Sean, what one... Or what, uh, yeah, what one decision you made um, after having kids had the greatest positive impact on your family's fellowship and culture? <clears throat> what one decision? Had the greatest impact, so. Mm -hmm. I know you made lots of decisions that have had various impacts, but if you think of, think of what's the greatest. The, the best? Positive the impact. Positive impact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's a sense in which I'm cheating. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get a running start into my answer. There's a sense in which uh, agreeing to read the dumb books that Mo told me that I needed to read when we started to homeschool Maggie, because I, I mean, whether you've heard me say this before or not, so. Even before Mo and I started having kids, she told me that she wanted to homeschool our kids. She had been homeschooled. I went to public school. Clearly, she had a higher IQ than me, so that resulted in we should homeschool. Science. Just science, right? And I said, I think that is awesome for you to homeschool our kids. 
And, you know, it came up every so often, and I, I maintained, I held strong. I totally think you should homeschool our kids. I was even teaching at another private Christian school. And then we had a kid, and then Mo was like, I think we need to think some more about this. I said, you should totally be thinking about how you are going to educate our kids at home. I'd, what do you need so that you can keep doing it? And Maggie kept getting closer to four or five years old, and Mo got a little bit more insistent, saying, look, I will do most of the day-to-day -day work, but you need to understand what's happening, so you need to read these books. And this was really not what I had agreed to, that I was going to have to have responsibility over this. So I said, I'm not, I'm not going to pick out books. You are going to have to select the ones that you want me to read and like give, give them to me. I'm not doing anything. I have a job. <clears throat> so she respectfully uh, found a couple books, uh, and I read them, and I hated them. One was called The Lost Tools of Learning by Doug Wilson. Yeah, Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning, yeah. And I still have my hard copy of that book, and I, you, you can come over to our house sometime, and I can show you in the margins where I am arguing and criticizing Doug in the margins. No way, Doug, this is stupid. Come on. Wrong, wrong, wrong. And um, it, was a, it was during the same set of, of window of time that I had finished teaching Ecclesiastes, and I started in Genesis. And I started, obviously, in Genesis 1, and I kept running into this, and God said it was good. Oh, wow, okay. And God said it was good. And like after the sixth one of those, near the end of chapter one, I realized, you know, I don't think I am thinking the same way as God about what is good. I think getting the heck off of the planet and being done with all of these earthly responsibilities would be good. And here he is saying, no, this part of earth is good and this task is good and marriage is good and the dominion to, you know, fill the earth, subdue it, take dominion, this is good, very good. And in combination with changing my mind about what was at, what God thought was very good. My family's life changed for the better. In other words, when I repented from, I mean, one way to say it would be when I repented from having a different worldview than God, when I repented from being a dualist, Gnostic, pietistic, uh, just wait to get out of here in the rapture Christian, when I repented from uh, only reading parts of the Bible that talked about salvation doctrine. When I changed, when by God's grace and God's word and God's spirit, when I changed my mind about what God said was good, 
lots of things started to change. Potentially, the one that came right on the heels of that, which was also then just a different application of what God said was good, was I really started studying the Trinity very specifically. And of course, while the Trinity is not explicitly defined in Genesis 1, there's some, some sort of seeds of the Trinity that are, I think are inescapable in Genesis 1, including the very first uh, plural pronouns of our, let us make man in our image. And then immediately saying how that image included male and female, so there was more than one. And as you skip into chapter 2, when, when God first said something was not good, uh, potentially then the, the next biggest and most crucial change was uh, changing my mind on what God said was good about relationship and fellowship. And that changed my thinking on what the Great Commission is about. That changed my thinking about what marriage and parenting is about. That changed my understanding about what communion and the Lord's table was about. What does God want? What does God say is good? What he says is good is being in fellowship. And that involves then truth and doctrine and learning to be right as opposed to believing something that's false, for sure. But I had much more been living like what God cared about the most is whether I had the right answer and then whether my kid could give the right answer. Not about how education and learning was part of the tools for sake of our work while we're in fellowship, which God thinks is good. So, that, I mean, there were some significant doctrinal changes, again, away from dualism a greater appreciation for the, the social nature of our lives uh, because of the Trinity uh, that, that put everything into a different context and required, required me to behave differently at the dinner table. I couldn't keep being a jerk at the dinner table and excuse it because I was right about what I had said in the second half of the sentence or, you know, whatever it is. So it turns out when you actually are trying to say what is good that God said is good, that doesn't actually keep you from being tired, uh, but it gives wind to, <laughs> to fill the sail of pursuing what is the right thing. So let's, uh, let's riff off of that for just a moment. So if I... And this, this really is hypothetical and kind of a dramatic question. But if I had to, um, if I gave you a choice, you have, op, you have two, two uh, vehicles for creating spiritual gravity for a city. So we're thinking what? I think about this. Okay. Well, right. So I'm, I'm about to give you two hypotheticals. Um, you had to choose between, let's say, one, one church, about 200 people that had really robust fellowship and worship. And that's option A. Option B is 20 families with deep, sweet fellowship. You had to choose between A or B to create gravity for a community. Which would you select? How are the people in the church having their fellowship apart from the families? I'm not trying to be difficult. Yeah, that's why it's hypothetical. Um, because, yeah, well, let's, let's, let's say... Um, 
the peop the people in the families aren't having their uh, are are uh, hopefully having their fellowship because they're being trained right in the church as well. So you mean like Sunday worship is robust? That's what you mean. So like. And, and I mean, even like even, you know, deep and lasting fellowship as a as, as a body in the during the week, taking care of one another and all the rest. So like a a, a church culture that is dynamic and um, fellow and and uh, worship that is robust is that going to have the same draw as twenty-ish um, families that actually really love each other? It is. It's a, It's it's a. A hypothetical question, and in some ways terrible, like it can't actually happen, but let's go with it anyway. Yeah. It's tough because I'm trying to think about how a church of 200 people who are experiencing deep fellowship would not have that experience at home. I'm, I'm trying to honor the hypothetical. Sure. Uh, it seems like that that would have to in my mind, affect their their family's fellowship. But I can totally imagine 20 families living in, a, in their moated property, sticking to themselves, loving one another, enjoying their, their, uh, their productive property, but unle- until they leave that productive property and fellowship, I don't actually think that that would as quickly at least bless a city. So then, because it, it is a really hard question to answer, but... So but, I, I think that, um, I mean, one could be the means to the other. Okay. And so I, I would start with the worship. I would... Philip, all afternoon, you've been, like, anticipating my questions. I love it. Oh, you, yeah? You, you, you get this seat next time. So... Because that's what, that's what I was going to say. Then where do we start? Go ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, I would start with the worship. Uh, and so, yes, you could have an uh, island unto themselves wanting to distance themselves from the city. Um, but worship is offensive. Worship is on the advance. Worship is going forward. And so it meddles. It meddles with the families. It meddles with the surrounding community. It meddles with the city. Um, and so if you are, if the objective is to take the city, I would start with worship. And so if I'm given a church that um, has robust worship with great fellowship, that seems like an easy start. Um, I would start with that. And then if there are... Un, uh, a lack of fellowship within the actual families, uh, I think even the way to address that is through worship, uh, through the community intermingling, through people meddling in one another's lives, and you you can't get away. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, because one of the things that the question assumes that maybe uh, uh, that the Amish would not assume. I say that because my mom lives in Ohio. I grew up a couple miles from a bunch of Amish farms. So, Amish. Uh, the Amish are not actually trying to change the city. So, I do think I can envision a variety of scenarios where those 20 strong families, uh, their end has been to make their family strong. So that's the goal. 
they got it. Okay, let's keep enjoying it. So why do we have to think about anything bigger than that is potentially a, a, a piece of the question. It assumes that we want more than just what is in our families. And for me, uh, how I how I think I would answer that is like when I was a kid and you know we had to make the mobile of the planets and then we'd talk about the Milky Way and when I was a kid you know we didn't have as good of telescopes as we currently have and so they, they'd talk about like the edge of the universe and for whatever reason in my mind I was like okay let's say we get to the edge of the universe what's on the other side so oh, we got to the end. I'm with, I'm with my teacher up, up to this point. What was like the next step? Nothing? Well, that, that would be something else. Or sort of like, and I, I only saw it once, but the Truman Show where he's living in the bubble and he sails into the wall and realizes, oh, there's a whole other thing on, on the other side. So <clears throat> when I think about my family being blessed, I, I got to the point where I was like, actually, maximum blessing for my family is not actually just going to be contained in the walls or in the address around this property. It's going to include their being blessed and having the opportunity to work with and bless people outside of the house. So I like the phrase, you know, you can't export what you don't have or what you don't make. So obviously home base is a true and good thing but home base for what home base to just keep blessing ourselves that's actually not then filling the earth and taking dominion and subduing it so being fruitful and multiplying and training and educating and having great fellowship as a family is an absolute necessary foundation and also not the end of what we've been called to do so the, the more I think about a, a barrier, the closer I've come to that barrier, I realize, oh, wait a second, there is something on the other side. See, this is why I was self-commissioned to move to North Marysville, to uh, colonize the beyond the barrier. And so we need more room, and so at least temporarily as a mission field, I'm planting a flag, and I'll be back. Yeah, like, so what is best for TEC is not that TEC is awesome and all of the other churches crash and burn. That's not actually best for our church, let alone for the city. So we should want people being, Christians in particular, being strong and blessed and fruitful all over the place and connected with them in the ways that we can be. So do we get the other churches to be stronger by not caring about our own people? No. But if we care about our own people, we're going to want more, we're going to want others to be stronger. And that includes the city. If I, if I want TEC to be the, the sheep who are part of this flock, to be maximally blessed, I would want them to have a different governor. And, okay, this is the governor that we have, fine. But 
I have trouble thinking that we can figure out maximum blessings just within this property. And so putting that back down into a family's perspective, like their family being maximally blessed isn't probably going to be an island. Maybe that island survives the coming apocalypse and they come out, you know, their great-great-grandkids come out after all of the nuclear fallout, you know, 100 years from now. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to find other people who survived and build together again. So as good as that is, it's not... I, I actually don't think that it is thinking broadly enough about the kinds of blessings that we can bring or that we can see God giving to us. We just can't do that isolated. Yeah, that's really good. And so um, it is safe to say with them we think that um, blessed families are not themselves a guarantee uh, of cultural change, um, but cultural change can't happen without blessed families. Um, and it, and in the same way that your pursuit, your interest in the blessing of your family actually did mean raising your head and looking around to what was outside of your, outside of your cul-de-sac. Likewise, if we actually really want My to see... My literal cul-de-sac, yes. Yeah. If we want to see even the people of TEC blessed, it is going to, um, it, it is going to not just require, but, but promote the blessing of, of Marysville. Um, and by the way, I'm self-colonizing, or se se I'm self-commissioned, uh, self, um, yeah, yeah self-commissioned to colonize uh, Far East Marysville right. as well, so yeah. right right there with you, yeah. Marysville has quite a few suburbs, it turns out, yeah, yeah all, all over Snohomish County, yes, that's right, yeah. Um, so uh, we'll maybe make this the last one, and you can take it however you want, uh, but what does Marysville need then more than anything else? Why don't you go first, Philip? Don't say Trader Joe's. I didn't even think of that, but that, that is actually a good one. <clears throat> I mean, it's, that's difficult to, to pinpoint it to one. Um, if you say marriage will need one more than anything else, Lordship of Christ, right? So if you're going to say that's one. That's a great answer. Yeah, that is a great answer. Jesus, right? That is the answer. Um, uh, but uh, I think... Uh, I'm going through made to stick, so the having ideas sticky, right? And uh, when part of what it talks about there is when, when phrases or words or whatnot are overused, people just get, get used to them and it goes one ear out the other, right? We, we all know that. Um, and so things like Jesus is the answer is, is a phrase that is uh, said and done and, and misused. But understanding the dynamics of the all-encompassing lordship of Christ um, wh what Jesus has a say in, what he cares about, um, where there is no distinction between uh, the Lordship of Christ when we exit the church building on Sunday, um, that we go out into Marysville and Jesus has a say on how we live and how we do business and how we work there and, and what the, the city council does. Uh, so understanding Jesus as an all-encompassing standard and authority and um, person that everything we do submits back to him. Um, so I, I would use that as, as an all-encompassing answer. So 
Jesus. <clears throat> One thing that Marysville needs, that was the question. Yes, above all. Uh, Marysville, uh, well, in terms of what can act, what we actually have, I'm going to try to say something I think that we can actually do something about. Not that yours was, I mean, the, the principle is totally there. Probably what Marysville needs more than anything else is for the elders slash pastors of TEC to be better, stronger, faster, wiser, and more fruitful. They, Marysville needs, Marysville needs to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. It would be awesome to get all the other pastors. I mean, I was, I was toying with answering to get all the pastors, period, in Marysville to be genuinely understanding and then committed to the sacrificial labor of, of living like Jesus Lord and training their own congregations to do that. And that's truth. But how do we get those other pastors to do that? And, I mean, we've, we've talked about the various pastors association that's already in existence. I mean, our, our experience since 2020 with a couple letters that we've sent to, you know, seven or eight different churches in Marysville uh, has been hit and miss. No, nobody more than you, Jonathan, has actually tried to build relationships with some of those other guys. Marysville Sun was hopeful to try to highlight some other churches and uh, perhaps even try to connect and encourage them in some of those ways. But, like, those other pastors are not signing up to get our teaching. And, and why would they? Uh, so what can but the the people need to be encouraged and strengthened and blessed for their labors and pastors our responsibility are responsible to be the first line of equipping the saints for the work of ministry so that the whole body is built up so who's it come down to well it comes down to starting with shepherds and so I guess that means we as shepherds need to be, again, wiser, stronger, faster, um, for sake of potential gravity. Not to make, not to make TEC increase in numbers, but to increase this sort of worldview, mindset, joyful, fruitful living, to see that extended, which is something that I think, to my knowledge, TEC is the only one that has, um, is trying to be as connected between worship, family, and work for the good of the city, that actually has a reason for that. And eventually, re eventually somebody needs to know a reason. Um, and we're the ones who have the best reason, so I guess we need to have some more fruit. Because the city council is great, fine. They're not, they're not what's going to change Marysville, though I'm as, I, I can't be more thankful for most of the things that they decide. 
I really do like our mayor. I would rather have our mayor and city council than any other mayor or city council that I know about in Snohomish County or in Western Washington. There isn't somebody else in Washington that's a politician that I would rather have in those positions. So I'm super thankful for them and, and they're not going to change Marysville. Um, they, can, they can beautify it to some extent and are. They can protect it in some ways and they are but we're the only ones who have reasons to do that and generational reasons to do that and worship reasons to do that. And so I guess we, we're going to have to do more Q&As. That's what it takes. <laughs> That's what it takes. Well, um, we, yeah, we, and we do have work to do. And I think you guys did great, so I think they did. Yeah. Did that was that was a solid D plus right there, guys. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, gentlemen, did you know any of those questions before? I didn't. I didn't really know what we were doing. So, there you go. So none of those answers were prepared. That was all um, me springing it on them. So, uh, I thought I thought you did a good job thinking. I would say on your feet, but on your seats. Um, so thanks for being good sports and for, uh, yeah, giving us some good motivation to, uh, to, to keep soldiering on because there is a lot of work to do. And there's actually a lot more questions to ask because I got through a solid third of them. Um, but late is the hour and like there's still uh, more wine to be uh, take, taken home over there and there's doxology to be sung. So let's stand together and we'll be dismissed.